think our perception of Gaelic and Irish settlers here in Iceland has changed quite dramatically in the last couple of decades. I think that we have always been very fond of the Gaelic aspect of who we are. I think that we have looked at ourselves as a nation of, of writers, people of literature, and I think that we have always somehow thought that came with a Celtic mix. So it came from our mothers, not from our fathers. <laughs> Well, I think the Melkorka story must have been a fairly familiar phenomenon. The woman who is enslaved and who ends up in a sexual relationship, whether consensual or not, with her owner. And then you get the more familiar story of the woman who just gets lost to slavery and far more women who don't have stories about them and are just lost to history as anonymous enslaved women. The story of the slave woman was, of course, the story we were brought up with. And this sense that it was very important for everybody to be able to trace the genealogy to a Norwegian king. But that narrative has started to change. And there is a sense in which the Icelanders would really like to be closely related to the Irish. In a sense, I think, with the Icelanders, is they're happier about the Irish connection than they are about the Norwegian one. The Norwegian one makes them kids. The Irish and Scottish one gives them a sense of rebel. And they've always liked being rebels. Uh, but the trouble is it leads into bank crashes and things of that kind. <laughs> Mother's blood, sister's songs, the story of how the genetics of Iceland reveals its Irish motherhood with composer Linda Buckley. Episode two, Sister Songs. by plane from Ireland, but it still seems otherworldly. It's a small country about the same size as Ireland, but with just 340,000 people. Its language is almost unchanged from the Vikings, and it's a country full of extremes. Volcanoes, hot springs, geysers bubbling from the earth and black lava fields. I started this journey through song, through music, Björk, Sigurus. And then that sense of wonder when I got to Iceland about why I kept seeing these red-haired girls who looked more Irish than me and how I even had people saying, you know, you look a little like Björk. So finding out that most of Iceland's first mothers were Gaelic, brought here by the Norsemen, often as slaves, and that there's this genetic link with us across a thousand years has been fascinating. But I've also been haunted by this story of Melkorka, the Irish princess slave who features in the Icelandic sagas. Everyone thinks she's mute until they hear her talking to her little son in Irish. And then she reveals she was taken captive when she was just 15 
and that her father is an Irish king, King Melchartach of Donegal. So I'm intrigued by how Iceland is making room for its Celtic, its Gaelic motherhood and ancestry, and for the stories, the language and the songs that these women, often silent in history, may have left behind. a sense in which the Icelanders would really like to be closely related to the Irish. There's a, there's a certain cultural longing for that. So I am Professor Gunnthorin Gummelsdottir and I teach in the Comparative Literature Studies at the University of Iceland. And why do you think there is that sense of cultural longing to connect from Icelanders to, to Irish? I think it because we are on the periphery of the Nordic countries and because we are a former colony of theirs, there is a sense that the, the relationship is imbalanced and that we would much rather go further south and talk to our friends. <laughs> and this has manifested itself in very interesting ways, I think, of course, in the genealogical research, which has gathered momentum. That's interesting, but I also think there are things like in a little village close to Reykjavik, they call it the Irish Days, which is a really interesting uh, festival because they have a very cliched idea about Ireland. You know, it's all leprechauns and so on. So it's, uh, you can see all these cliches and myths coming in. So it ranges from, from that to the sort of academic interest in what was really going on. Who is the slave woman and, or was it really that there was Irish settlers that came themselves and not just brought as slaves. At a concert in Harpa, the striking concert hall jutting out into Reykjavik's harbour, a tall, red-haired woman playing the flute catches my attention. She looks like she could be on a poster for Tourism Ireland. And when I check her name in the programme, I realise she is a modern Melkorka. My name is Melkorka Olafsdóttir. I'm a flute player. I studied the flute since I was nine in Iceland and in Europe. But I'm currently working as a program manager at the Harpa, the concert house in the centre of Reykjavík. And I still play the flute and I play as a freelancer in the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra, in the opera, and in the flute band Vibra, which travels with Björk. Um, so we're doing a tour now called Cornucopia. And so maybe could you tell us a little bit about your name, Melkorka? So that obviously has huge significance. Were you aware of this when you were young, that it had been attached to the sagas. Yes, I was, and I, I was quite proud of my name. I was happy that I had this special name. 
my parents made it so, I think. When I was born, I, my name was supposed to be Björk, actually. <laughs> but um, some coincidence made it so that my parents were reading Laxdala Saga at the time when I was in my mother's womb. And I think my father came across Melkorka there and yeah, they, they were inspired by her story and loved the name. So they decided to give it to me. At the time, they only knew about one other Melkorka, but now I think there's a lot of them or more at least. And do you think it was to do with the character of the kind of strength of Melkorka originally, or was it to do with this, the sense of her originating from a Gaelic background that was interesting for your own parents in terms of naming you Melkorka? Probably the combination of both. There's a nice story when my parents were getting to know each other, they made a, a wish list and my, my father wrote at the top of his list, a red-haired girl. And I, when I came, I was red-haired and there's, I think there's some saying that Melkorka was, had red hair as well. And my mother was part of the feminist movement in Iceland, so she was quite a strong woman herself. And did you somehow feel any connection to that in terms of Ireland? Well, I, I remember telling the story of my name a lot when I was a kid. We lived in the States when I was seven and eight, and I proudly told people, you know, where my name came from because people kept asking. So I've been spreading out the, the story of Melkorka around the world <laughs> since I was a kid. But I might not have been so conscious about the, the Irish roots specifically, and I've never been in Ireland yet. So I hope I, I can do that soon. Here in Iceland, we can trace our ancestry back. There's a, a book called Islandinga Bók, and you can just look up and trace back your roots. And I'm the 29th from Melkorka, according to this book. And my son, who's here in the womb, he will be the 30th. So that'd be exciting. <laughs> I'm Bára Grimsdóttir, I'm a composer and I'm a traditional singer and do other stuff also like a choir conductor and a chairman of a society called Kvæðamannafélag Eðun Society who have collected uh, lots of uh, traditional tunes. I think we have some similarities in that we both were connected to dairy farms and singing traditions. And maybe could you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and your connection to song as, as a child? I heard my grandfather sing often traditional tunes and my grandmother also. But it was so funny often with my grandfather. He 
when he had a conversation with people, he often spoke like a like a poems, and sometimes he started to sing the poems. He knew loads of these little verses, you know, and he always could come with one in in each kind of conversation. And my father, when we moved back to Reykjavik, my father and his brother, they were often asked to sing together traditional songs from their area where he grew up in Vastalur in north of Iceland. And they used to practice at home <laughs> because uh, my uncle's wives, he didn't like this kind of music. So... <laughs> And did you he- learn from hearing it around the place or, or were you, did you actually decide very consciously I'm going to sit down and learn these songs or was it just very much from something that was in the air? Yeah, it was basically like that. I just learned uh, the tunes and uh, it was not what I decided to learn. It's just, you know, I swallowed, swallowed this music, drank it with my mother's milk. <laughs> I often find with some of the songs that it is modal, but yet as a range, it's quite wide oftentimes as well. And and would you say that ornamentation is a very strong feature throughout or is it very different depending on who the singer is? Well, in the tradition of Rimbaran, it used to be, but singers now, they don't do that so much. I remember listening to my grandfather, the way he used the voice was a kind of different than other people around me. And when you, yeah, when you listen to old recordings, you can hear other people sing it with, with that kind of technical song. Bára Grimsdóttir is an extraordinary folk singer and composer. Her name comes up whenever you ask about music in Iceland. She often performs with her husband, Chris Foster, and like the folk singer Steindor Andersson, who influenced Sigur Rós, they've brought new life to Icelandic folk songs, like Rímur, a rhyming chanted song, often sung when you're working on the farm or in the farmhouses in the old days. I can give you one example of little tune and verse which my grandmother used to sing. Konan blessu kemst Beautiful, thank you. Can you just maybe tell us a little bit about what the story behind that, even that little excerpt of what yeah, you're singing it's, about? There? It's basically about the woman, she's, she wakes up in the morning and get the dishes ready and uh, wakes up her servant and feed them. Yeah. 
I feel like Icelandic people are in general very ashamed of our music heritage. But when, when we get guests like you, you uh, we say like Glöchter gest auga. Uh, guests they can often see things clearly than we here and but then somehow we are always excusing ourselves and like for example there's no hardcore teaching in music Icelandic music heritage so that's quite strange but we are so busy to always do something else learn African music or <laughs> Indian music and but then we push the Icelandic heritage to the side and now it's not cool enough I'm Christine Laurusdóttir. I'm from Iceland. I'm musician, cellist, and I also do electronic music, baroque music, and my most passion of all is Icelandic chanting, rimnakveskapur, or kvedandi. On a Sunday morning in a town not far from Reykjavik, I met up with Christine Laurusdóttir, who was playing cello at her local church. Christine uses the name Celostina when she performs, a gentle play on her instrument and her nickname. And why do you think that is looking outwards as opposed to inwards at, at one's own culture here? It's why, why we have this shame in our blood then because for a long time we were so isolated and we were very poor and then at the time we got more open and then we, it was very important for us to be nation among nation. But I think it is important for every nation to know about their root and for us here in Iceland it's part of our self-esteem. The language is so big and the manuscript and this rimur it's so big part of our self-image. I was going to ask you about Steindor Andersen because I think he brought Rimur to a lot of the wider world outside of Iceland and the work that he did with Sigur Rós as well. Yeah, actually this one piece we were doing, so the basic was just his voice and my cello, and then I took that recording and put to my computer and add other layers on it, and so something like that we have been doing. your background really interesting in that you have very strong grounding in baroque music in cello playing in icelandic folk music and also in electronic music so maybe you kind of weave an interesting path between these worlds i heard some of your music where you're integrating elements of reamer with electronics and the cello yeah it's just when i started to do my own music compose and electronic and and then it somehow just automatically came just uh, this influence from what I have been doing earlier, for example, the 
rimnakveskapur that Icelandic chanting and of course because I'm a classical cellist that also influenced my music making and, and baroque music and all kinds of things. you to Reamer when how did you first hear it yeah I of course heard it sometimes in the radio and of course they teach some Icelandic folk songs in schools and music schools but then somehow around 20 I, I went to some lecture in the university when they were talking about Rimna Kveskap like you say Reamer and then I, there was no turning back. What was it about it that she loved? Um, I don't know. It's our mantras. It's it's calming and it's somehow inspiring and and, and there's so much in it. I cannot explain. <laughs> our folk music is mostly in the voice. We like if you compare to other Nordic countries, they use very much instruments, but we use the voice a lot. I'm very curious about electronic music here because, of course, electronic music is a part of what you do as well. And I feel like Icelanders have this connection to electronic music somehow. I often feel that it's inspired or connected to open, expansive landscape. Even Björk and Sigurós and Amina and Moon. And, I mean, do you feel like you're influenced by that in your own music? Yeah, it definitely inspire my music making and I have done a lot of just go with my little record machine and record the nature sound and sometimes I put it in my music making. And you've worked as well with Sigur Ross, I see. Yeah, it's just I just played in uh, just few songs. They needed just a small string octet. So Sigros, of course, captured the imagination of many people outside of this country. And why do you think that is? Why, why the, the huge explosion of interest in Iceland through the music? You mean why people get interest in Iceland through music? Maybe they can sense some kind of spirit that is here or some kind of freedom or unspoiled nature spirit. But I don't know, we are, I think still we are not so pure here in Iceland. I mean, Icelandic nature is still in danger. We, I think we are not being too enough careful and so it's not so pure as we try to play.
grew up on an Irish coastal farm, I felt that immediate connection to the visual and oral landscape of Iceland when I first came here. So much flows between us, Ireland and Iceland, history, genetics and culture. We are both people of story and song, and yet a thousand years has separated us from that beginning with women like the slave princess Melkorka of the sagas. I suppose the Irish-Icelandic connection is really during the Viking period and then there isn't any connection from the Middle Ages on. Certainly, you know, even when I went to Iceland in 1979, you kind of would have been hard-pressed to find another Irish person who had recently been there. My name is Eilish Nigwivna, or Eilish Nigwivna Almquist. I'm a writer of fiction, mainly non-fiction and other forms as well, and I'm also a folklorist. Icelanders, there's so many differences between them uh, and the Irish. The population is so small and it is so homogenous. Icelanders have, it's been a small group. People in the past lived scattered around on farms, isolated farms. And one is that they're very literate people. And you know, that's adduced as one of the reasons why the language has not changed very much from Old Norse to modern Icelandic. They're very proud people. I mean, we kind of think we're proud, but it's, it's, it's more mixed, you know. They're proud to be Icelanders. One of my favourite novels by Haldor Laxness, that great novel, Independent People, I think that's how Icelanders see themselves. parallels between, say, storytelling in Ireland and storytelling in Iceland? I think one of the things that characterizes Icelandic storytelling is the size of the place. And this closeness and this sense of belonging and the sense of the story being part of who you are and part of your community and so on, I think there's lots of parallels there. Certainly one thing about Iceland that is, again, different to Britain is that you say, you say I'm a poet in Brighton, for example, and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it doesn't have a lot of effect. In Iceland, as an island to a certain extent, while neither country has a lot of respect for anybody who tries to act like a star, you, you don't do it. Same with Iceland. But at the same time, there is this respect for the man or woman who has the power of creation and language. Gunnell's a folklorist at the University of Iceland. He settled in Iceland for many years. His wife is an Icelander. And with two hurley sticks propped up in his office, he's someone with a keen interest in the links between Ireland and Iceland. These are people who've, other people respect because of their power with words and, and the artistic creations that they, that they make. So certainly the, the poets are seen as some, somebody greater 
a little bit like artists in general, bringing us back again to things that words can do. They can make and break politicians, they can do all sorts of things of this kind. So yeah, there's a, there's a connection between the two. But then I think there are also differences that it may be hard to quantify. In Icelandic culture, they're probably much more laconic. There's a lot of hinting at things, things being discussed euphemistically, really, or stories being told to hide something. But maybe also the sense that the story is just fundamental to us, that it has to be told and that it has to be shared. I think that's something that has been around for a very long time and that we understand the world through stories. Every church has an organ and often a piano. The countryside is dotted with these little wooden churches, like the one there that Björk sang in. Most people, over 80%, are part of the Lutheran State Church. It's central to community and music, perhaps more so than religion. And just about everyone, like Björk herself, starts singing in choirs. My name is Arnhildur Valgarsdóttir and I am an organist at this church, Fetla Ohola Kirke. And I teach piano and I accompany people singing and I play lots and lots of musician, musician kind of work. And I sing and I conduct choirs and I play the clarinet a little bit. And there's yeah. such a strong tradition of female choirs here too, oh, isn't there? Yes, there is. Yes, I've been very much involved with female choirs for years. Of course, Iceland has such a high number of choirs. It's just ridiculous. Like when I used to live in Moselspeich, with um, how many people are there? Maybe like seven or eight thousand. There were like 13 choirs there at one point, which is quite a lot, I think. Yeah. You know, people from the countryside that, who joined the choirs, they were just trying to hold on to the roots of their farms. You know, the countryside where they had been living. They usually always have their own, own songs about the area where they come from. Because there's a bit of sorrow involved because the countryside isn't at all what it used to be. I mean, most of the farms are just like two house tours, etc. So the countryside that we sing about, it only exists in the songs now and it doesn't really exist at all. There's a poignancy to that, I suppose, isn't yes. there? Yes, and I think that's why those people joined the choirs 
And they say, oh, I am in the choir, you know, from, you know, Stifelsness or Arnes or, or whatever. So they're bringing their countryside with them in the form of a choir, really. I, I was very interested in the fact that you have classical training, but then yes. you're also interested in folk music and folk song, and sort of how are those strands part of your life, or how did they kind of come together? I suppose if, if you're Icelandic, you're kind of born with those songs. So, I mean, I grew up, you know, with the, like, the mother's milk, as it were. So I just grew up with lots and lots of Icelandic folk songs. I think everybody does. traditional Icelandic music is just parallel fifths, which is, you know, it's just really weird. And it's just, it doesn't even sound that nice, does it? It doesn't. And it seems to me here in Iceland that there's quite an openness and an inclusivity about bringing genres of music together. So classical and folk and electronic and acoustic yes. and all these things. It seems that there's not so many barriers between those worlds. Do you feel that? Oh, yeah, well, yes, exactly. I mean, very little barrier. Yes, definitely. And I think a lot of young people, just everybody is allowed to experiment at lib, you know, with everything. Yes. I don't think there's any barrier, really. relationship between sound and music is something that is so deeply embedded in the souls of musicians and composers here that it's very hard to separate them. Composers like John Cage talk about this, how the sound of wind or the sound of traffic or any environmental noise can be considered musical. This was always really important for me growing up, the sounds of the sea, the sounds of foghorns, milking machines. So I feel, especially in the younger generation of Icelandic composers, that this is coming through in a very strong way in their music, in a very natural and instinctive way. And I think we really see that emerging in people like Anna Thorvald's daughter. For me, probably one of the most interesting composers from Iceland. Laura Brindis Eggertsdóttir and I'm the organist at Hjallakirkja. There seems like such a healthy, thriving scene at the moment of the younger generation of composers here as well. I'm thinking of people like Anna Thorvald's daughter and, and Daniel Bjarnason. And what strikes me about their music is that it creates a very evocative sense of atmosphere and a strong sense of where they come from. Do you think that is something that is quite 
prevalent in, in the younger generation of composers here, that there's a sense of creation of atmosphere. Yeah, I, I agree on that. It's very easy to uh, like make a cliche out of it that y- you have this uh, stereotypical uh, picture of uh, Iceland, uh, some some bad weather, black and white picture, and of course then you get a young fancy composer that writes music that fits into this picture. It really it isn't a cliche. It's uh, our reality, and so it feels very natural. quite a long time studying away outside of Iceland. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there always a draw to return home? Was there something that was bringing you back? It's uh, special with Icelanders. There's a a very strong draw home. I was away for almost 10 years. Uh, At the end, I was living in Japan for two years. And it felt too far. And I ended up wanting to come home again. Something about nature, I think. Something calm. Just tell me a little bit about the landscape of your life here as a freelance musician overall. Because it's very varied, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Iceland is a funny place. You meet a person and they tell you they're a poet and a flute player and, a, and they work in the office too. And <laughs> it seems perfectly normal. I had to get used to it because I, I was playing at a very high level when I finished my studies. For me, I had to kind of let go of perfectionism to just do this kind of varied life. It's uh, definitely a luxury to be able to live like that. I personally just didn't feel secure enough to be totally a freelancer. I wanted to have more stable income, but there's just one orchestra here in Iceland. My name is Katie Buckley. I am the harpist with the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra. And yes, I've lived here for 14 years. What would you say is quite unique about the music scene here in terms of of many different worlds coming together? I think just the ability to get a chance to do everything. So when I came here, you know, I thought I would be an orchestral harpist, but I've gotten to do a ton of new music. Um, I have a percussion and harp duo that I play with. I've played on movie soundtracks and pop albums and stuff that I didn't imagine I would be doing here because there's not so many of us. We get to do everything. I think that's really nice. Why do you think in summer this size that there's so much surge of creativity in artists and musicians and composers? I think partially because it's very dark and if you don't do something you go crazy and the weather is also not the best for most of the year so it's it's a matter of either 
do something or lose your mind kind of thing. <laughs> I think that plays a big part. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of freedom here. I see it even with the kids and like my son. They're kind of free to be themselves from a very young age and nothing is discouraged. So it's not a big deal if a guy dances or this kind of thing. It's kind of like gender neutral freedom to sort of do what you want creatively. I mean, do you think there's sometimes is a bit of a generalization from those outside Iceland in terms of the landscape always impacting on the music? Or do you think that's really a reality? I think it's a big reality because it's kind of in your face. You know, the landscape is just like, <clears throat> it's right here. So it becomes just part of everything. There's no, you know, skyscrapers kind of keeping you in a small area. It's just, it's here. I was a teenager when I first heard the music of Björk and I remember there was this one song where she sings about this town doesn't have room for my big feeling and I remember being struck by that as an idea and me coming from a very small place too she's been a really huge influence on me she obviously felt the need to move away and spread her wings and get her music out there and now she's mostly between New York and here in Reykjavik but you do get a real sense that, like so many other musicians we've met here, who have gone and returned, that she wants to bring something back home. And I think she's very much doing that now, while spreading a more universal message to the world. Like in her focus on the environment and climate change in her new tour, Cornucopia. And what's also striking about that tour is how she's bringing Icelandic musicians and choirs to the world. It even opens with Icelandic folk songs, with Rímur. Katie Buckley and Melkurka Olafsdóttir are both part of Cornucopia. For years now, she's taken a group with her of Icelandic young female musicians. The choir that she took, and, and now the flutes, which are young female performers. And they come from all different aspects. Some of them are playing in the orchestra, and they all come together and do this crazy dance playing thing. And then the choir, of course. Like, not being Icelandic, like, you don't understand, but everybody has sung in this choir. <laughs> Everybody is in this choir at some point in their life. So there were kids on tour that I've known since they were like five, and now they're young adults. There were two songs that we recorded at first in this harp quartet. So I was recording each part. There was Horizon and then Blissing Me. 
than uh, when it came out because it, it was maybe two years between. You know, I knew the album was coming out, but I actually had no idea if either of these songs would be on the album. And then I heard Blissing Me, I think that was the second one that she released, and it was like harp <laughs> everywhere, so it was pretty shocking. You, you really never know, so I didn't know what to expect, but Blissing Me ended up being quite harptastic. interested to see Björk talking about her new tour of Cornucopia at the moment and she talks about the new music being connected to something light and airy and open and the flute being connected to that as a kind of representation of something very positive and light and bright. I mean do you feel that and is that kind of part of the reason what drew you to the instrument? Uh, I personally always had problems with flutes. I thought it was too girly, and I wanted to be cool. Björk, of course, has a way of making everything cool she does. I think these ideas of it being light and, and bright is also to, to be a contrast to the, the, the last album, which was quite, yeah, it was a heartbreak. And also, she's been very conscious about all the, the situation in the world with nature and trying to find a way of not getting too gloomy about it and uh, bringing hope and approaching maybe modern, the modern situation uh, with a more female view. Just trying to emphasize that matriarchy maybe has better solutions to world's problems than the patriarchy we've been living with. process like of bringing the music together for this? Is it that arrangements are composed by Björk and then worked on very collaboratively with you as flute players or is it more show up to rehearsals? Very collaborative. We worked a lot in her summer house and she was incredibly open to our ideas and also bringing out different characters of each player and listening out for different approaches to the flute and the music that we were working with. That was very inspiring. I feel Björk is beyond countries and beyond definitions in the way she works. I sometimes feel like she's much more famous outside of Iceland than in Iceland, or we are just kind of used to her. And it's it's quite beautiful. She lives close by, and I think people are very conscious of just letting her be normal here. I've never worked with a musician who is so creative and so everything is always new. She's always breaking out of anything that feels stuck. She never gets comfortable. 
And it's very inspiring because a lot of people also want her to get comfortable because it's more comfortable for them. So I think it takes incredible strength of character to keep approaching things like that. While Iceland's motherhood may have started with slavery, since 1900 it's become a global leader in women's rights. Its prime minister today is Catherine Jacobs' daughter, and Vigdis Finnboadottir made history in 1980 when she became the first elected woman president and the longest serving one. She's an inspiration for women like Melkorka and Gontorun. I feel very lucky in that aspect, having been raised here as a woman. I think being a child and the president is this amazing woman with this Fimpodotir, who always showed very independent character, humor, um, intelligence. Um, she was president for 16 years. So actually most of my childhood, she was president. I think that made a, a great impact on the generation that grew up with that. Ireland has had two remarkable women presidents. The equal rights of women in Iceland compared to Ireland over the past century is one stark difference between the two places. I think this is probably, for me, the biggest difference. The violent independence struggle for Ireland was completely different experience for Iceland and then feminism and the rights of women because it's very hard when you're brought up in a place like this you're brought up with this uh, constant discourse on women's rights on feminism and sometimes it feels really really slow but especially when you travel somewhere else you feel how privileged you are being raised here And of course, the Catholic Church, of course, there's nothing like that. And the influence of the church is nothing like that in, in Iceland. And so it's, it's sometimes it's just very hard to understand. And I think it's also one of the reasons why it's very hard to understand Irish politics for somebody from outside. <laughs> because you just think, what, what, you know? <laughs> so where are the um, left-wing parties and what is? <laughs> and I, I still haven't got it, I'm afraid. <laughs> We round our journey where we started with Melkorka, this ghost from the sagas who has become quite real to me across these conversations. And while Iceland may feel happy to embrace its Gaelic Celtic roots and celebrate her, it still feels, understandably, more ambiguous about slavery itself.
Yeah, I think the story, I've been investigating it a little bit, you know, this idea that uh, the female part of Icelandic nation was primarily slaves, Celtic slaves, and it might not have been so simple, and maybe they weren't all slaves. Although this story, like Stella Saga, obviously claims that Melkorka was a beautiful mute, mute slave, they might not all have been that. They might have just been married to Nordic men. And there, there have been graves found in Iceland where both Celtic and Nordic people were put in grounds and slaves wouldn't have been put in kuml, you know, like uh, these official graves. I think most of the people that came to Iceland were came here in peace. It wasn't a violent state here in Iceland. It's called Ambaut, which means a female slave. I've written poetry since I was a child. Ambaut. Hún átti ekki heima hér, svo hún þagði. Hún þagði í gegnum æsingin, hún þagði í gegnum þögnina. Hún þagði í gegnum fornfræga sögurnar. Melkorka. She did not belong here, so she kept silent. She kept silent through noise, she kept silent through silence. She kept silent amongst the historical tales, the chiefs, their gatherings, the houses made of mud, the jealous wives. She kept silent through love, through lust, through missing, through humiliation through pride, through glances, the blood, and the sun that never rose above the mountains, through the never-ending darkness. She kept silent through comparison and aging, through uncertainty, transformation, through solitude amongst other tongues, other people in another country. The ocean which looked different from the other side, the ground that smelled of foreign plants. She kept silent, that was hers. But that day, the creek was babbling. The sun opened her head, so her ears were raised, and her eyes, and the child it babbled to. So she could not resist. She could not but join in their song. That was the final episode in the series Mother's Blood, Sister Songs, presented by composer Linda Buckley. The programme was an Athena Media production and the production team was Helen Shaw, John Howard 
and Linda Buckley. The audio mix was by Pierce O'Queeve. You can listen again to that programme or podcast it from the Lyric Feature webpage or from the RTE radio player. And you'll also find additional material about the programme on Athena Media's website. That's athenamedia.ie.